Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. This Palm Sunday, we begin our Holy Week walk with Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane to Golgotha. And our gatherings this week, Palm Sunday, today, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, these are, these are invitations to companion Jesus throughout his week, to companion him as he nears his, his crucifixion. This Palm Sunday, the church invites us to companion him as he descends. Descends into what? He descends into desertion and into mockery and into abandonment and ultimately into death. So let's companion him this morning. Let's companion him as the disciples desert him and the soldiers mock him and the Father forsakes him. Because we see in his descent the depths of his love. Now, Jesus' descent begins in earnest, really in Matthew 21, when he sends his disciples after a donkey. And he literally, altitudinally, if that's a word, descends from the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem into the city of Kings, Jerusalem. And the people herald his arrival with palm branches, waving them and spreading their cloaks before him. Now, I am completely on board with Esau McCauley's article for CT this week. If you happen to see it, it was titled, This Palm Sunday, Ponder Donkeys, Not Palms. Excuse me, Not Branches. Ponder donkeys, not branches. His point is this, and it's well taken. It was the people, not Jesus, who chose the palms. Why did the crowds choose palms to herald Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? Why might Jesus have had mixed feelings about it as a symbol? Well, a generation before Jesus, a man named Simon Maccabee led a violent political revolt that drove Israel's enemies out of Jerusalem, and the people celebrated by waving palm branches. And the palms are all over the coins of this day, um, Jewish coins, they were symbols, the palms were symbols of Jewish nationalism and, and military victory. So the, the palms were not a nod, excuse me, they were a nod to Jesus' kingship, but a kingship that they didn't yet understand. Jesus was not to be a violent political revolutionary, a Simon Maccabee 2.0. Conversely, what does Jesus choose as his symbol of kingship? A donkey. He knew that the old prophet had promised long ago Zechariah 9.9, that God's king was coming to rescue his people on a humble donkey. And so here he was, God's king, strange king that he was, a king on a donkey. So for his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus picked a kingly symbol, but one of humility and loneliness rather than lowliness, lowliness rather than military might. And this foreshadows really his whole descent to come into Holy Week, desertion, mockery, abandonment, and death. And so Esau's article concludes this way. Jesus' claim to be the Messiah was not simply a goal, God's rule over all things. It was not simply about a goal, God's rule over all things. He and the crowd agreed on that point. They waved palms. They were declaring him king. Yes, he's king. Great. But his earthly life and ministry were also about the means of accomplishing that goal, namely sacrificial love. See, companioning Jesus through his descent means we don't just crown him king. That's good. That's a good start. The palms, the palms get us so far. But we will also get up close and personal with the kind of king he is, the king on a donkey. So if we could afford it and donkeys weren't so unwieldy, I would prefer to have a donkey walk right down here than the palms. But the palms will suffice. But that's the symbol Jesus chooses. So Jesus begins in an agonizing prayer. 
Um, it's Thursday now. He had be, he'd come into Jerusalem. He had met. He had cleansed the temple. He had taught. He had warned. Opposition has been mounting throughout the week. Now it's Thursday night. He's had his last meal with his friends, and they retire to the Garden of Gethsemane outside the city walls. And Jesus begins agonizing in prayer. So we're in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. This uh, Caravaggio painting, The Taking of Christ, the first slide, if you could bring it up. <clears throat> the, paint, the, the Taking of Christ, it depicts the kiss of betrayal here from Judas. That's apparently Caravaggio himself lighting the scene with a lamp. And then here you see the disciple John fleeing in terror. What happens just before this betrayal? Taking his most intimate friends, Peter, James, and John, Jesus begs for their companionship. The message humanizes the scene for us. We read in 37, taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Jesus plunged into agonizing sorrow. And then he said, this sorrow is crushing my life. Stay here and keep vigil with me. Now the two questions I want to ask and attempt to answer, why was Jesus in such agony? The Gospels give us this cascade of Greek words that are just brimming with emotion to describe Jesus' dark night in the garden. Agony, defined as consternation, appalled reluctance. Troubled, defined as loathing aversion mixed with despondency. Jesus describes his own heart as overwhelmed with sorrow. An all-encompassing distress that, that hems him in on every side from which there is no escape. Mark's gospel says he is deeply distressed, defined as horror-struck or alarmed dismay. Agony, loathing aversion, all-encompassing distress, horror-struck, this bitter cup Jesus agonized over drinking. What was it? Well, it was not, as we might think at first, the, the physical torment and death that awaited him. I think this is clear. I mean, Jesus was braver and was he not braver than Socrates? You all know the story of Socrates. Socrates. He famously chastised his friends. They were falling into absurd panic as he peacefully drank the cup of hemlock that would end his life. Was he not braver than Socrates? Had Jesus not plainly warned his disciples, you will be persecuted and possibly killed? Rejoice when you suffer. Could he not live out his own teaching? The centuries are, are full of the deaths of brave Christians. Think about one that comes to mind is 2nd century Bishop Polycarp. He was burnt alive while he prayed these words, O Father, I bless thee that I have been counted worthy to receive my portion among the martyrs. So what was Jesus agonizing over? Writing in the cross of Christ, John Stott clarifies. He says, look at the lonely figure in Gethsemane, prostrate, sweating, overwhelmed with dread, begging, if possible, to be spared the cup. He says, the martyrs were joyful, but, but he was sorrowful. They were eager, he reluctant. How can this be? The cup from which Jesus shrank was something different. It symbolized neither the physical pain of being flogged and crucified, nor the mental distress of being rejected, but rather the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world, of enduring divine judgment which those sins deserved. Jesus agonized because he was to become sin, and from this contact with human sin, his sinless soul recoiled. And he agonized because he knew that it meant, he knew what it meant to drink the cup of wine that was God's wrath. He did not for an instant rebel. He remained submitted, but his, his vision had become blurred as a, as a dreadful darkness engulfed his spirit. But in the end, his will remained surrendered to his Father. Now, an important caveat. The cross, the cross is not God the Father punishing 
God the Son against his will. Nor is it God the Son persuading an angry father. We can't read it that way. We need to do some Trinitarian theology to understand this. Jesus' will is always to do the will of the Father. Their wills are never in opposition. They are, together with the Spirit, united in common purpose to sacrificially love and redeem humanity. They are of one mind and one purpose. But Jesus is agonizing and wrestling in prayer as he submits his will to the, to the Father's will, which is his will. So again, this is Father, the, the Father sending the Son and the Jesus willingly being sent. This is the Father saying, drink the cup, and the, the Son freely saying, yes, I will. P.T. Uh, Forsyth put it this way. When we might ask the question, we're looking at all this happening, we're looking at the cross, we might say, why didn't, they just, why didn't the Father and the Son just sort of declare forgiveness from afar? Why all this blood? Why all this suffering? P.T. Forsyth says, God died for men and women because the holiness of God is meaningless without judgment. The holiness of God is meaningless without judgment. The one thing God could not do in the face of human rebellion and sin was nothing. He couldn't look at injustice and oppression and violence and shrug his shoulders. He must either inflict punishment or assume it. He chose the latter, of course, thus honoring God's holy justice while saving the guilty. He took his own punishment. That's why Jesus is descending towards the cross. That's why he's in agony. Jesus became sin, and he wrestled in prayer to prepare himself to drink the cup of God's judgment on our behalf. Now, why did Jesus desire the company of his friends? Don't overthink that question. Fully God, fully man, and here in the garden we see a very human Jesus. Here was a man facing immense hardship. And like when you or I face immense hardship, like we all long for, he, he longed for the comfort and the company of his best friends. And so once, twice, a third time, he seeks his friend's companionship, and three times they sleep instead. And they let him suffer utterly alone. They let him suffer utterly alone. Now, it's easy for me to see myself and the disciples here how often I choose sleep over spiritual vigilance. And yet their selfishness and frailty does not deter Jesus, does it? He presses on. And thanks be to God, your frailty and selfishness and mine doesn't deter him either. He, he goes to the cross willingly. So Jesus is the hero of, of Holy Week, not us. Now I wonder, what, what was this like? What if you, friends of Jesus, were there? Imagine your back is against the base of an olive tree and you, you force a sleepy eye open to see your friend Jesus across the way, and he's, he's stumbling and bent in agony, and he's darkly lit by the moon, and the branches of the olive trees are causing shadows. What's going on in your heart as you imagine that scene? N.T. Wright says that for those of us who are suffering in darkness, he says, when we see ourselves suffering and we are in darkness, we find the ground giving away beneath our feet. Sooner or later, we shall go to Gethsemane. Because that is where we find that the Lord of the world has been there before us and therefore can be with us. What do you, what's happening in your heart as you see Jesus agonizing in this darkness? Do you, want to, do you want to companion him? Do you want to run? Do you want to sleep? What would you say to him if you could? Matthew 26, 56 closes the scene with this stark and irreversible loneliness. Verse, 20, verse 56, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. 
What was it like for Jesus to watch his best friend desert him, to watch all of his disciples flee? Undeterred, Jesus consents to this desertion and allows himself to be given over to the soldiers. Do you see in this descent the depths of his love for you? He's been brought before Caiaphas then, and then Pilate, and then his own people demand that a criminal be set free and Jesus be set on a cross, so Pilate hands him over to be crucified. And then picking up the narrative back in chapter 27, verse 27, let's companion Jesus next as he descends into torment. If you could bring up the the next slide with the text, I've arranged it in a way to uh, show you the point that John is, uh, Matthew's making here. The soldiers took Jesus, they gathered the whole battalion before him, they stripped him, put a robe on him, crown of thorns on him, reed in his right hand, and then they kneel before him and mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took a reed, like a a mock scepter, and they struck him on the head. And then they had mocked him and stripped him of his robes, they put his own clothes back on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Now Matthew is doing here what's called a chiasm. So he's building towards the middle, and the middle is the point. And so we have these verses 29a and 31b, Mary, verses 27 and 31b, the soldiers are leading Jesus somewhere. Verses 28 and 31, they put on and take off a cloak. And then verses 29a and 30, they do something to Jesus' head, and then there's the repetition of the word read. But then it all comes down to the, the poetic and theological middle here, where there's no parallel. The point is that these soldiers are paying homage to Jesus as king, but mockingly so. There's so much irony here throughout this passage. Like we said this morning in the reading, his blood be on us and on our children. If you can come to the next slide. This painting, uh, 1622 painting by Dirk van Baberen, images Jesus' willingness and tenderness, his suffering, his descent into torment. He's not elbowing and, and fighting, tearing away. He's, he's letting it be done to him. This strange king on a donkey is surrounded here, literarily and literally, by torment. He's being led around by evil men. He's being stripped naked and ashamed. The soldiers are staging a mock enthronement, giving him a king's scepter and a crown and a, and a reed and a robe. And then they kneel before him in mock adoration. Hail, king of the Jews, they laugh before spitting in his face and beating him with a stick that they had pretended was his scepter. Jesus descends through the disciples' desertion, now into the soldiers' violent torment. And I wonder what filled our friend Jesus' heart as he watched, as he watched and saw the pupils of the eyes of these bloodthirsty soldiers kneeling in mockery and ironically proclaiming the truth of his own identity, as he felt the warmth of their spit run down his brow. Would he call a legion of angels to strike him as he could have? No. He's not going as a victim here. He's a volunteer. He would consent. This is why he came. He came to descend, to descend into their sin, into your sin, into my sin, into our spiritual sloth, into our faithlessness, into our violence, into our hatred, and to love us all the way down to the bottom. That is why he came. So what arises in you as you companion Jesus in this torment? Do you want to leave? Do you want to hide? Do you want to fight? Well, how is Jesus responding to this torment? 
Can you see in his descent the depths of his love for you? Well, finally, the hour has come. Let's companion Jesus into his last breath, the moment of his utter abandonment. Matthew 27, verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. As we sit now in the the noonday darkness of these final moments with our friend Jesus, what, what are we to make of these words? He's quoting Psalm 22, his prayer book. Psalm 22, 1 reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. We might think this is a cry of anger or unbelief. Perhaps he had, he had thought up until that moment that the Father was going to swoop in and rescue him. Maybe his faith had failed him. No, I don't think so. Jesus was not a coward in the garden, nor was he faithless from the cross. Indeed, I think the words, my God, communicate a level of ongoing trust, even in the midst of this forsakenness. Now, some suggest this was just Jesus expressing loneliness. Well, true enough, I think that's true. But the context of Psalm 22 also suggests an objective experience of being actually forsaken, not just feeling forsaken. And so I think we should hear and and take these words from our friend Jesus at face value. This was a cry of real dereliction. They represent the truth of what happened on the cross. Jesus was forsaken by his Father. An actual dreadful separation between Father and Son had taken place. Now theologians wonder about this and discuss the paradox of how this could be. And I have several books I could refer you to if you want to read more about it. But this is Jesus' agonizing prayer, Psalm 22, giving voice to the emotional and actual experience of God-forsakenness. So, so much for military victory. This is the king on a donkey. He gave himself over to this forsakenness so that he could not forsake you. He emptied himself to fill you. He became a slave in order to set slaves free. He humbled himself to exalt you. Can you see in his descent the depths of his love for you? This final image I want to bring up. In his book, The The Message of the Cross, Derek Tidbald tells of the time when the National Gallery in London hosted an exhibition entitled The Image of Christ and Salvador Dali's painting was was featured toward the end of it. Within the first two months, 50,000 people lined up to see it. And at the time, the Scottish Art Review reported that people entering the room where the picture is hung instinctively took off their hats. And crowds of chattering, high-spirited schoolchildren were hushed into awed silence when they saw it. And this is the invitation of Holy Week. I invite you to come and to behold the descent of Christ this Holy Week, to sit before it, to enter into it, to take off your hat and sit in awed silence as you companion Jesus through desertion, through mockery, through torment, through death. Now, as we companion this this king on a donkey into the depths of his love, maybe the sacrificial love that we encounter there and the humility that we encounter there as we companion him, maybe that will imprint us and rub off on us a little bit. Maybe this week and beyond, we will look for ways to get on a donkey and take, take the low road, the, the path of humility and self-sacrifice and love. As our collect for the day prayed, mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering, that we may love like this, 
And yet sometimes we won't. Often we won't. Sometimes we will be slothful, like the disciples. We will be indifferent. We will desert him. Sometimes we will betray him and be found faithless. Sometimes we may even spit at him in anger, and that will not deter him from loving us unto death. And so we behold the man upon a cross, our sin, your sin, my sin upon his shoulders. And ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Father, we pray you would take us by the the heart this week and help us to companion Jesus through this holy week. Would you mark us with his humble love and would you remind us of his abundant grace? Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.